0: Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at a couple of important pictures, metaphors of the spiritual life and of the condition that we may be in when we're separated from God. Those those two conditions were the condition of the rebel and the sinner. Last week, we looked at the rebel. We We examined the life of Barabbas in relation to the life of Jesus. And this week, we're going to revisit someone that we've looked at briefly before as we understand this other picture, this picture of being a sinner. This week, we're going to look at what it means to be a sinner saved by Jesus. And to do that, we're going to examine again the life of the thief and alongside this, in parallel to these, to these two conditions of spiritual life, the rebel and the sinner, we've looked at two big metaphors that help us to understand and to navigate our life in general. The first is the metaphor of the journey, and we've looked at journey from several different perspectives over these last few weeks, and this week we're going to look at at the other big metaphor that you find in the New Testament, the metaphor of location or place. We can be in different locations, and God wants us to be in a particular spiritual location with him and not alienated or separated from him in another location. And so this is going to be the undergirding of what it is That we look at this week. We're going to read from Luke chapter 23, and we're going to begin in verse 26. And unlike other weeks, I'll be reading a portion of Scripture, just making a few comments, and then continuing to another portion of Scripture as we read that together. So keep your Bibles open if you have them with you. And if you're at home, I'd encourage you to do the same thing. Luke chapter 23 and verse 26. As they led Jesus away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children, For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men will do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when the tree is dry? Something tremendously important about Jesus. Is expressed in these few verses and will continue in this passage in a moment. But just as we're moving towards this holy ground of the cross, let's pause for a moment to see how the way that Jesus was meant that certain things always happened. The first thing that always happened was that those who were a long way off were brought near. There is a centripetal force from Jesus that sends us out. No, maybe it's the other way around. There's a centrifugal force that sends us out, and there's a centripetal force that draws us in. There's There's a gravitational field that pulls people in from far and distant locations. Simon. Of Cyrene, he was. He was from Africa. He was from a, an entirely different place. There were Jewish communities in North Africa, in what we now call Libya, and those Jewish communities would come on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But from the perspective of the average Jew, these people were lived in faraway places, and yet the one who came from far away was brought to a special place of honor in the presence of Jesus carrying his cross. So well recognized that the people who read this passage for the first time would know Mm. who it was that was being spoken of. He's not introduced in any way. He's just Simon of Cyrene. Here is someone whose name has become honored He may have been identified in the crowd because his face was different. His skin may well have been darker than those around him. But for whatever reason, he was identified. In his identification, he was brought close and honored to carry the cross of Jesus. And then, as well as those who are far off, there are those who are powerless. Women at the time of Jesus had no power. had no no conditions of influence, certainly within the public realm. And here women are weeping for Jesus. They, They understand the fundamental injustice that is taking place and they weep for a young man cut down in his prime. They weep for a man who is suffering the persecution of those religious leaders who hate him. But the interesting thing about Jesus as he brings close those who are far off and as he lifts up those who are powerless in both circumstances Jesus shares his confidence with them. Look what he does look what he does with the women. The women are weeping for Jesus but he knows that he needs to warn them that one day they will weep for themselves. He, he brings them into the circle of his influence and authority and he shares with them insight that no one else can give them. He warns them of the future. Maybe as they hear of the legions marching through the land, maybe as they're aware of the Roman army beginning to muster its ranks they remember the words of Jesus that he brought them into his confidence and they escape what an amazing thing that would have been and then the narrative of course continues we already know that this is the way that Jesus is that there is this there is this amazing Force that draws people from the very margins into the orbit of the Savior. We know that that the, the least powerful reach out with the last ounce of energy they have to find the power that is in him. We see it even as Jesus makes his way to the cross. And it continues like this in verse 32. Two other men... Both criminals were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they were crucified with him. One on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. For there was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Jesus is being crucified in public, but is very much alone. However, however you experience this, this, this story of tragic persecution, wrongful conviction, unjust penalty and death, One thing to remember is that in the radical love of Jesus, he was prepared to accept a radical loneliness on our behalf. An isolation from the world that meant even those that had abused him took the opportunity to mock him and to belittle him. And in the midst of this, you would imagine that Jesus would look into himself, but he doesn't. He addresses God in a formal tone. Usually Jesus, when he's speaking in prayer to his father, uses the word Abba. All of us know this, of course, the familial word, the the intimate word, Used by a child of his father in the tongue of the Hebrews. But here on the cross, Jesus uses the formal title, Peter. He's speaking to the head of the household who sent him on a commission. He's speaking to the head of his household who has asked him to represent him in a specific role. And so he addresses his father, not in the intimate terms of a child, but in the formal terms of a son on an assignment. And he prays for others. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The story continues. Verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. To the women, he said, if they will do this when the tree is green, what will they do when it is dry? There is a moment in the history of Israel when the life of God the Redeemer, is present among them. When the green shoots of life are everywhere, represented in this young man's body, broken and bleeding, and as the women weep for him, he says, I symbolize the life of God among you, You've seen life everywhere, the life of the kingdom. And it's brought springtime to Israel for just a brief period. And if during springtime they'll cut down the tree, what will they do when the tree is devoid of life and is dead and dry. This picture of the kingdom bursting out f- from Jesus, bursting forth in everything he says and does, is of course an image that we see throughout all of the Gospels. And whether it was intended to be a cynical sneer, the prophetic sign above the head of Jesus was absolutely true. Here is the king of the Jews. What was it that stirred in the heart of the thief? No doubt those two thieves were probably part of that insurrection that Barabbas was leading that we looked at last week. No doubt these thieves were rebels too. And one rebel continued in his rebellious nature, not recognizing Jesus for who he was and, and, and hurling insults at him like everyone else. But the other thief, did he read the sign? What was it? that stirred in his heart, we we don't know what it was that was spoken to his heart, but we know that faith is beginning to emerge and we know that faith comes by hearing the word of God and that the word of Christ. Did he hear the words of forgiveness spoken by Jesus? Did he hear the words of compassion as he drew the women into his confidence and warn them of future events? Was it the words written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek above his head? We don't know, one day we'll get to meet him and ask him. But something stirred in the heart of the thief. He was a long way off and somehow he was brought near. This idea of location is so important if we're to understand how God wants to work in our lives. It's so important that we understand what it is that God has done and what it is that God wants us to participate in as he draws us Into the circle of trust and gives us the commission that he first gave to his son Jesus. You see, there are people who live in a location very similar to the location of this thief. This thief was in a conscious, living hell, he was being punished, he was guilty he was separated he was isolated he was most certainly one who knew fear and guilt and shame hanging naked before the crowd slowly bleeding to death as his sentence is fulfilled a picture of what it means to be in hell. And what he hears from Jesus is that he has an invitation to heaven. Isn't that amazing? The gracious invitation of Jesus. And for those of us who would like to see people born well into the kingdom and so perhaps go through the right kind of process. It's quite a challenge to realize that there was no sinner's prayer prayed here. There was was no baptism that took place. There was no process by which this man was formed in his faith he was simply given the gracious invitation to come and share the walled garden of the king. The word paradise simply means that. It's the walled garden of the king. Where the king in the cool of the day would walk in the presence and in the company of the chosen courtiers that he had favoured to walk with him And have conversation with him. This picture alive in the minds of people at the time was the picture that Jesus was painting for the thief and anyone else who was listening. I'm about to go to the walled garden of my kingdom. And I'm going to walk in the cool of the day and you're invited to come close. A Christian theatre company in England called The Riding Lights in the 70s and 80s produced a really beautiful, dramatic sketch about the immediate aftermath of these events. A conversation between two angels as they stood at the gates of glory, looking to the horizon and wondering who would be the first to enter heaven Because Jesus had saved the world. Would it be a king? Surely, someone of noble birth. Would it be a righteous person? Surely, someone of saintly life. Would it be a person who's given their lives to... Gracious and generous activity. Someone whose life can be lifted up as a model for others. And here comes this shambling form walking on the pavement of gold. It's a thief who knows no theology, who did little good, and who definitely doesn't deserve to be here. And he's the first. Surely if he's the first, then everyone's welcome. So let that settle with you for a moment. If he's the first, then surely everyone is welcome. Jesus went and found the thief in his hell and brought him to his heaven. In the book of Romans, in the New Testament, we'll get to it eventually, I'm sure, you have these great pyramidal peaks of revelation. Chapter 5 may be the most significant of all of them. This amazing, scaling, overarching height that gives us an understanding of what it is that God does by grace. And Paul says in that amazing text, he says, We have now been justified through faith by grace. And it's grace in which we now stand. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 5 and verse 2 through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. There is a place called grace. There is a place where it is so conditioned by the generous love of God, so conditioned by the initiative that God wants to take towards us, so conditioned by a heart of love that constantly wants to reach out to us and bring us near, that the only word to describe it is grace. It's the place called grace. And we've gained access into this place simply by faith. The thief expressed his faith by saying, Jesus, remember me. Just a small mustard seed. Remember me. He didn't know what to say. He didn't have the words. He'd he'd not learned any of the forms of prayer. Just remember me, Jesus. And he was brought into the place of grace. From where? Where? Well, verse 9 tells us, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? I pointed this out to you before. The word God does not occur in the Greek text. It's been put in by the translators for us to understand it. But in a way, it kind of misleads us from what it is that Paul is trying to articulate here. Because what he's trying to do is give us an understanding that you can move from one location to another location. The wrath, the wrath, the wrath, just in case you're not quite sure what it is that I'm saying, the wrath is what the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, called the Howling Wilderness. God came to the Howling Wilderness and found us and plucked us from that place of massive insecurity and brought us into his land flowing with milk and honey. You see, in the Old Testament, we have a picture of what will be. God finds us in the wrath. In the howling wilderness. And he brings us into grace. And all he asks is faith. A friend of mine, Buddy Hoffman, who's gone to be with the Lord now, a great pastor from Atlanta. We were out, I forget where we were, I think we were walking somewhere out in the woods. And he was telling me of some of the folks that he was ministering to at the time. And one of them was a man who was training the Navy SEALs. He was a colonel and he was a specialist in training and he said to him, so what's been going on? He said, well, one of my guys has got himself into a few scrapes, but it's okay now. He said, oh, what happened? He said, well, he, um, he asked for a, a temporary leave of absence from his post. He was a senior officer and um, he was asked why and he said, well, I'm, I'm not going to tell you. I'm just asking you for leave of absence. And so his senior officer decided to allow him to have that because of his good service. What he found out later was that the man's daughter was a missionary in Afghanistan and that she had been working amongst the people over whom the Taliban had their power and reach and that she had been captured by those fighters And she had told the fighters that her dad had told her that he'd come and get her. And that she really ought to be let go because it wouldn't go well for them if her dad had to come and get her. Now this is an absolutely true story. The man took leave of absence, gathered a few friends, went to the government offices in Kabul. When he arrived he said, I know I'm not allowed to do this, but um, I'm gathering a group of guys. I'm going to go and get my daughter. They said, you're not allowed to do that. He said, yeah, I know that. The story goes that she was in a darkened room having warned her captors that her dad was coming. She was certain he would come. When the wall of the prison collapsed, and her father walked in. Carried her to safety. You see the thief, he was trapped. He needed someone to come and carry him to safety. When I was a young seminarian, I went to Berlin, it was in the years when Berlin was surrounded by East Germany before the reunification of Germany in 89-90. Berlin was separated into two halves, East Berlin overseen by the communist regime and West Berlin which had been secured and saved from the overwhelming forces that surrounded it by the Berlin airlift. I went to visit my sister and brother-in-law. He was in the British Army. She was a military wife. I went to visit them. I had a great time. He lent me one of the Army's messenger motorcycles, and I remember driving along the wire right next to No Man's Land, watching the East German guards train their guns on me as I rode past. I felt like I was a character in The Great Escape. And then he said to me, do you want to go to East Berlin? I said, sure, how do I do that? He said, well, the law is this. If I wear my uniform and you accompany me, then I can travel anywhere I want. And I said, seriously? He said, yeah, we'll have people follow us, but but you can come. So sure enough, we went to Checkpoint Charlie, and we went through Checkpoint Charlie, and I walked with him all the way through East Berlin, past the bombed-out buildings, past the place where Hitler's bunker had been, and we went to a department store, and... At that point, he said, let's have some fun. And I said, okay. He said, I'll go left, you go right, and see what the German guard does. So this German guard had been following us all along the streets of East Berlin and into the the department building. And then, of course, one of us went one way and the other one went the other. And he had to follow the man in the uniform, because the man in the uniform had the authority to be there. You see, it may be that you need rescuing today, like the thief on the cross, or it may be that you're called to be part of the rescue team. And if you're called to be part of the rescue team, then you need to accompany one who has authority to go into the howling wilderness and bring to safety those that are dying there without God. One more story. A few years later, perhaps, having been prepared by my experiences in Berlin, I and Sally went to Saudi Arabia at the invitation of the British ambassador. And we did the Christmas services, or I did the Christmas services, at the the British embassy and at the American embassy. The American embassy's Christmas service was outdoors. It was beautiful. We had a lovely time. And we were there for a whole week. We would have telephone calls where people would come come on the phone and say, we'd like you to come and help us do some gardening. And we'd say, oh, and what, what kind of gardening is that? Well, they're fairly exotic Filipino plants that, that we're gardening right now, and uh, we'd love you to come and help us with that. Or, or maybe some plants that are from the Asian subcontinent. I'd say, oh, marvelous. Well, I'd love to see those exotic plants. And off we would go under the cover of night through the streets of Jeddah, into secret locations and encourage the saints. People who'd been brought to faith by the work of God's people. And on one occasion, I went to one of the encampments where Filipinos had been brought as workers. They had their passports taken away. They were not free. And in the cafeteria... The vast majority of them came to faith that night. Now, the kind of fun side of it was that I'm being taken to various different locations. The slightly more stressful side of it is the part that Sally's playing because she's on her way to the airport wondering where I am, and there's a certain concerned look on the face of the person that's driving her because already. The British ambassador is calling the person in charge of the Christian community to say, where is Breen? If you don't get him out of the country on any plane now, I can't protect him any longer. But the reason that we got out is that there was a system of authority. You see, The oppressors had to go through that authority before they could come and get us. And however concerned people were as they waved us off onto the plane that they got us on, they knew that we were ultimately safe as long as the system of of authority continued. There are two locations two fundamental locations in life. And if you are saved, and if you're walking with Jesus today, you are in the place called grace. And my question to you is this, will you, in the absolute confident knowledge that this is your home and you can never lose it, will you venture in the company of of other believers into the other location where the vast majority of people live and in doing that will you do what Jesus did even with his final breath on the cross you see he is our model of course he's our savior but maybe you've heard that too many times for it to make much difference. Of course, he's our savior. But he's our model. He's our mentor. He's our master. He's our guide. And I believe he would ask you today, will you venture for me to the other place? You're secure in the place that Jesus has made for you. But will you venture to the other place in the absolute confident knowledge that you're in the presence of one who has authority for you to be there? And in that authority and with that power and in all of that confidence, will you take that journey to that other place, to the howling wilderness? There are so many people who have had the reality of their life uncovered. Things have been stripped away. Their usual confidence has been eroded rapidly. Their sense of security has been denuded and here they are isolated and spiritually alone. And they need someone to reach out to them and bring them home. That's our call. That's our job. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that in the midst of your suffering, you reached out to the marginalized, to the powerless, to the lost, to the sinner. Lord, we thank you that you've done that for us. Lord, we're so grateful that we're able to sing the songs of Zion. We're so grateful that we can celebrate the salvation of your cross. But Lord, we pray that you would turn our hearts towards those in the howling wilderness. To those, Lord, who are lost without you and Lord may we follow you as you cover us with your authority and may we see a day when many are brought into the place of grace and we ask this Jesus for your glory